Welcome to the Product Podcast, brought to you by Product School, the podcast where you get fresh insight from leaders at top tech companies and startups. Remember, you can learn product management in person at our 15 campuses worldwide or study with us online. Visit productschool.com to learn more about our courses. You can also hang out with the leaders from these podcasts at our hundreds of annual events and catch us at ProductCon, the world's largest PM conference that takes place every year across the United States and in London. Some time ago, I was director of product for an enterprise company. The, the, and I joined the company, I inherited a, a small existing team. Uh, the enterprise product was a fairly complex, high, high price point product, and we were brainstorming ways that we could increase leads and, and drive awareness, obviously, to drive additional sales. Uh, during one of the brainstorming sessions, one of the C-suite stakeholders leaned over and said to me, I have a straw man for you. Okay. And he then prescribed a very specific solution based on his understanding of the customer, his understanding of the market, conversations he'd had internally. And I noted that idea along with many others for consideration and evaluation for solving this problem. But subsequent meetings, he kept on coming back to the same solution. When was it going to be ready? What resources had we allocated to it? What was the, how had we evolved the, the, the solution? Who had we talked to to get buy-in? It became pretty clear that he was very enamored with his idea. This is when a team, one of my uh, new team members lent, uh, came over to me and said, look, Ken, when he suggests a straw man, He's not really suggesting. I was new to the industry, new to the company. I had to build relationships. Uh, he obviously knew a lot more than me, so I adopted the plan. But that didn't feel that didn't fit that well with me. Had we really explored enough ideas? Had I done enough primary research of my own? What risks do we not know? What validation had we not completed? But probably more importantly. What kind of culture am I creating for my team if this is how we prioritize work? Well, needless to say, it didn't actually work out. While it generated a lot more leads, those leads were largely unqualified and that just frustrated the sales team. I'd fallen victim to authority bias. So I decided how would I learn from this? And so the last couple of years, I've conducted some research on uh, biases that product managers face in the workplace. I'm going to focus on three biases today. As a reminder, uh, that will be very familiar, I think. Uh, reminder to think about the prevalence in your industry and in your companies, and to be aware of how you can actually mitigate them. This is a more famous example of authority bias. This is Milgram's obedience exper experiment of, in Yale in 1961. This is where a perceived authority figure was ordered to shock subjects with uh, electricity. Sorry, authority figure ordered subjects to shock recipients. The shocks were fake, but that wasn't known to the subjects who blindly obeyed. So it, my definition of, of authority bias in the context of product management, and I'll read a definition, is that a manager, key customer, or other other stakeholder in a position of power or expertise, whether or not that's perceived or real, may assert information to be true 
or a course of action to be the correct path. The tendency is to skip a critical assessment of the directive, perhaps out of deference for the authority, an over-eagerness to please them, or just an assumption that they have all the facts. So what kind of research, what data did the, came back about authority bias on the research? So I'm going to share some early trends. Uh, the survey is still going on, and it's at all levels of seniority for product managers across all different industries. 60% of product managers said that they experienced authority bias often or always, as defined. And a third of them believe that their company actually handles it pretty poorly. That is, that they don't actually have a mechanism by which they can mitigate or push back on the authority bias. 95% of product managers admitted that they had fast-tracked a feature not because of the value that it was going to create, but because of who had asked for it. Half of them often accommodated these ad hoc requests late in the development cycle where they did not go through the same kind of vetting and discovery and validation. And many of them believed that these uh, were not actually necessary additions. And two out of three agreed that despite them being nominally in charge of prioritization and their roadmaps, that in the end of the day, the senior stakeholders' opinions ruled the day when deciding product priorities. The good news is, is about 50% actually feel comfortable and empowered to challenge a senior member of their organization. And this trend seems to actually be increasing, so there's some positive news there. So I'll share an example where I overcame authority bias. I was working for a, as, as interim head of product for a fairly sizable social networking mobile application. It was a niche product, but they had a very, very loyal following, millions of daily active users. Those daily active users would spend up to 90 minutes on the product. And they'd done a very successful job of also upselling their user base into a premium version. And they had about 400,000 users paying about $100 a year to use the application. So it was a nice, nice little business. Unfortunately, for two years, they hadn't been able to ship any new substantial product. And the root cause issue was that every prioritization decision and design decision had to kind of get funneled up to the, to the CEO stakeholder. The CEO actually founded the company because he himself had faced this problem, and he very much found himself or thought of himself as the target audience. And so as a result, all the decisions were based for him. In addition to that, there was bad discipline in terms of adding features to an already late release train, making things later and later. So what was the solution? So the first thing is, is to balance opinion with data. Now, this guy was very much an intuitive thinker, very much about qualitative um, analysis, and so that's where we started. We worked to create a, a fairly simple weekly validation process where we would bring in users, five users was enough, to start getting the voice of the customer more represented in conversations. Now, he was very concerned about this big investment on his small team, so we kept it super, super simple. We didn't, add, we didn't create new prototypes, we just took whatever we had. Uh, we only did five users every week, and it was really just testing whatever issue de jour we were like dealing with at the time 
to get directionally useful information to kind of balance his own. Secondly, to be get more quant quantitative and to sort of unblock the, uh, the releases that we hadn't been delivering to our customers, uh, we developed a three-stage beta program, which really reduced the risk because on a thousand users, you can, you can test a lot of things. And we up-leveled the conversation from feature-level priorities to goals and outcomes and KPIs. And around those, we also identified countermetrics and some tolerances under which, so long as we were meeting, we, could, we agreed, pre-agreed, that we could move forward. What was the results? Well, almost immediately, the team felt empowered to challenge opinion with both qualitative and quantitative data. We massively descoped secondary features because of the, the, the goals and KPIs that we had demonstrated that we could achieve, and we launched within three months and generated a revenue lift. In World War II, aircraft losses were high. To reduce losses, the Allied forces studied planes that returned from battle to discern additional armor placements. They noticed where the bullet holes were, the wingtips, the center, the tail. But by neglecting the planes that didn't return, they missed armoring the plane's most vulnerable areas. That was where the bullet holes were not, the engines. This is a famous example of survivor bias, where you act on the data you have, but you don't necessarily compensate for the data that you don't have. In the context of product management, survivor bias is commonly bedeviling customer research, user behavior analytics, and user testing. And that is to concentrate your efforts on those most active with your product. These users are generally more positive about your product. Active users are more visible, more easily reached, typically more responsive, and therefore they tend to get overrepresented in your collected data. A simple example of this is think about an onboarding and adoption process. It's typical to talk to those that made it through your onboarding process because they're using your product. But you may not be talking to those that dropped out early and easily, maybe even in the first five minutes, to find out why. Another example is in paid marketing, there's a tendency today to send signal back to social and search on the audience that you're acquiring and they're tuning to find lookalike audience over and over again so you get greater efficiency. But the problem is, eventually you tap out that pool and your growth stalls. They're both examples. So what kind of research came back from our, our studies? So I broke this into consumer and enterprise because I wanted to see if there were some trends that, that split across. Um, and as we dug into what, what are the inputs that come and inform product managers' prioritization processes, uh, we identified, of course, un unsurprisingly, in consumer apps, behavioral analytics of your current users is the number one dominant input into prioritizing your uh, pro uh, product feature priorities. And that kind of makes sense. We're in a data-rich environment. The tools like Google Analytics, Amplitude have really bought us. Uh, we should be looking at that and making decisions around that. But it's insufficient. And over-reliance on it is a form of survivor bias. Your most active users will be overrepresented, but it won't tell you much about the users that gave up. 
When looking at disengaged users or elapsed users, only one in three product managers agreed that it was a top three source. And almost 60% admitted they had rarely or never interviewed a dissatisfied customer. Pretty shocking. Enterprise didn't fare so well either. Unsurprisingly, direct customer uh, requests or requests coming through their sales teams from existing highly motivated customers was a predominant input into prioritization decisions for, for uh, enterprise product managers. And that's probably the way it should be, so long as these requests are not one-off solutions or the, 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 the prescriptive enabling the product manager to step back and actually creating a solution for a market is, is, is fine. But when they looked at things like adoption and usage within the enterprise of their solutions, only two in three, well, two in three ranked their, that kind of behavioral analysis in the bottom three of their input uh, methods. And they admitted that they invest in those areas only occasionally or less, whether that be activation, adoption, engagement, repeat usage. And 12%, only 12%, reported that talking to disengaged or elapsed customers was a top three source, three source uh, in making prioritization decisions. This is survivor bias. Here's an example of how I overcame it. So I was uh, brought on as a consultant for a franchise management system. I'm not going to get into too much detail about it. It's kind of complicated, but it's sufficient to say there's franchises, franchisees, and franchisees can have one location, few locations, or many locations. They're kind of small businesses. And this tool allowed all sorts of communication, process rollout, brand management, operational practices to be shared across the entire franchise. They'd done very, a very successful job. They were a fairly sales-driven culture. A successful job of selling into that market, um, particularly, unfortunately, the long tail, the single location and the few location mark, uh, the, the customers. Within the company, there was a couple of really core values. Number one, uh, they had extreme customer responsiveness. The CEO, founder, had actually been a franchisee, and he really felt the pain of running a small business, and he wanted the whole company to feel that pain. And so they were very um, responsive to any kind of concerns that were being raised by their customers, which was great because this wasn't done willy-nilly. This was a strong process. They, they looked at each of the uh, incoming requests, and they really vetted those requests to make sure that it was going to create value. However, what was happening is all of that urgent stuff that kept on coming up dominated all of the development and that pushed out all of the important longer-term strategic uh, development. So what was the solution? Well, to break this survivor bias, we had to identify a market that we really wanted to serve and go and learn much more about that market and talk to people that we hadn't been talking to and much deeper. And that was uh, the home services multi-tenant market. It's an underserved market. Um, and we actually decided to encourage churn of a lot of these lower value clients, which is very painful. 
Sometimes we actually help them onto a competitor's product. Uh, sometimes they were profitable, but only marginally so, but the opportunity cost of continuing to serve them was too great. And to balance the sales-driven culture of focusing on sales at sort of all costs and, and keeping existing customers happy as the primary metric, we also looked at deeper ad adoption metrics for the multi-tenant home services market and making sure that we actually balance that. Secondly, we made a very deliberate decision about how we would prioritize work through a portfolio. Now, it'd be naive to suggest you cannot continue to serve customer, incoming customer requests, but we wanted to make sure that stream of work was constrained and very clear, and that enabled us to really focus on building the delighter factors for our chosen market that weren't actually being asked for, as well as the core platform. What were the results? Well, within one quarter, we'd actually delivered a roadmap to this particular market segment that allowed us to talk to that, that um, customer set in a very different way. And we'd actually started to deliver quite substantially against it. We landed two beachhead, large-scale, referenceable customers, and we'd shrunk that single location client base significantly. Unfortunately, this pivot came too late, and the company ran out of runway. Google's project Aristotle is a landmark study of teamwork and, and team performance. Started in 2012 and published findings in 2015, it identified five critical factors of team success. Impact of work on business and customers. Meaning of work personally to the individual. Structure and clarity of the work. That's goals, clear process, clear um, desired outcomes. Dependability which is reliance and mutual accountability on my team. And the fifth factor was psychological safety. Can I take personal risks with my team? Psychological safety was coined by Harvard professor Amy Edmondson as a shared belief that the team is safe for interpersonal risk taking, that you can be confident that the team will not embarrass, reject, or punish someone for speaking up. By far, psychological safety won out as the dominant factor for team success, even more so than the impact of the work, the meaning of the work, and the mutual accountability of the team. In the context of product management, the absence of psychological safety creates reputation risk. More or less defined as once you propose and communicate support for an approach, you become personally invested. It's very easy to fall in love with that idea. That's called the halo effect. Or you may see failure of something that you have supported as a re reflection on your personal failings. You become defensive and inflexible, and you reject data that may contradict your belief, or you and the team might just take fewer risks in the first place. So I, asked, I wanted to see what kind of behaviors uh, aligned with psychological safety. So we asked this question first. I would describe my company as one where failure is embraced as learning and taking risks is actively encouraged. And I was really encouraged to see that 60% of respondents thought that was true. We have a ways to go still because 25, 23% said that they didn't feel that was true. This is encouraging. What were some of the behaviors that really correlated with psychological safe environments? 
there was a feeling that you could challenge even, even senior stakeholders when you have doubts. That was encouraged and, and uh, common. Rather than build a product solution that you defined up front, the process tended to be much more about prototyping, validating, and iterating. Being, having the right solution up front was less important than finding the right solution over time. They rolled back not just because of some technical failure, but when business metrics weren't being, weren't being met. They had re regular retrospectives and five ways in a blame-free environment to get to the root causes, and then they really tackled those root causes. And then they literally celebrated even when things didn't work out. This is a true learning environment, or learn fast. I hate fail fast. Yeah, fail fast is, isn't, is, is not helpful unless you're also learning. Here's an example of where I overcame reputational risks in the team. Now, reputational risk does not have to manifest itself as outright fear or a false representation of the outcomes or, or constant defensiveness. It can be very cultural. It can be right under the surface in just affecting the decision-making very subtly every single day. And one such case I experienced was when I was head of product for a subscription business, uh, I built a conversion optimization team, and we set them a very high visibility conversion optimization OKR. Basically from 1% to about 1.4, 1.5%. And we gave them resources to then uh, do A-B testing and optimize and try to actually get us up to, to that level. Now, unfortunately, the environment that we're working in had traditionally been a very top-down, low-trust environment. So you basically had a, a team that was in a, with a very audacious goal, with no clear way of getting there, in an environment where they'd traditionally not felt trusted. They were anxious. Now, obviously, as head of product, I was trying to change that culture, but that's going to take a lot, a lot of time. So what did they do? They tried safe ideas. They thought every single idea they generated had to work. What's more is that the A-B testing went very, very slow because there was such sensitivity that affecting even a couple of, like, 5% of users negatively would be seen to be failure or something very bad. And as a result, um, over six months or so, that investment we were putting in, typical team, product manager, designer, engineers, that investment was getting very, very marginal returns to the point where we all were thinking about winding down the team. So what was the solution? Well, counterintuitively, taking that big goal off the table was really key. We deprioritized that outcomes-oriented goal and replaced it instead with a behavioral goal that emphasized the kinds of things that we thought would get us there. This included two key components. One was this test velocity. We call it at-bats. The, the more swings you take, the more likely you're going to hit something. And the second thing was to get an, a better mix of, of the smaller, safer ideas and some bigger swings that might have outsized payoff, but obviously higher risk and maybe greater effort. Secondly, we really worked on the team's culture, the team's environment. Couldn't solve the whole company at this point, 
But we started by tackling their ideation process by in emphasizing less evaluation and critique up front and more going for volume and putting any idea on the table. Uh, learning as an outcome being valued and celebrated and developing a set of product principles which included things like everything is hypothesis driven, uh, speed and iteration is of the essence and that failure is okay. What were the results? Well, we built amazing confidence and motivation in the team. Um, we really saw them uh, accelerate their work. The throughput and the breadth of ideas, both the number of ideas and those bigger versus smaller ideas, implemented drove up, and we hit our goal. Now, I might say that changing the team culture wasn't possible, changing the, the company's culture wasn't possible, but changing the team's environment was. And so even if you're facing uh, challenges with this in an organizational setting, that doesn't mean you can't tackle that within your team. So I challenge you to re reflect back on what biases you, you are facing in your workplace. And a couple of things to take away. Uh, it's naive to suggest that stakeholder and customer requests can be ignored or not even a major part of your product investment. The key is to strike a balance. Secondly, when faced with lots and lots of data, pause and ask yourself where the absence of data might be. And then go and get what you can so you can try to balance that out. And then it's not that hard to encourage a psychologically safe environment through hypothesis-led learning, calculated risk-taking and celebration. And remember, as product leaders, it's powerful when you can say, I'm wrong. So, remember as your product leader, your, your role as product leader, uh, look out for those business voltmeters and try to keep the shocks down low. Uh, remember, despite all the, the bullet-ridden product planes that are coming back to land, be aware of the ones that might be at the bottom of the ocean. Uh, protect that psychological safety of the team above all other attributes. It's more important than impact, structure, uh, and keep, keep encouraging them to be in their learning zone. And finally, watch out for those straw men because they're scaring away better product ideas and more powerful solutions. Thank you. Thank you for listening to The Product Podcast. If you like this episode, don't forget to leave a review on iTunes. For more product insights, head over to productschool.com.